0: This
1: episode of Fat Mascara is sponsored by BetterHelp. Listen, we all carry around different stressors, big and small. Therapy is a safe space to get those things off your chest. Plus, it can help you develop coping skills that make your life easier. I will give you an example. If you've listened to this podcast for a while, you've probably heard me say it to Jess or to a guest, reframe. Well, I learned that technique from a therapist. Here's an example. Now that I'm a freelance writer and podcaster, I get lonely working from home, and I feel like I'm never going to get to collaborate on projects again. And that's the truth For no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash mascara today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash mascara. Again, betterhelp.com slash mascara.
2: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Fat Mascara. Welcome, welcome. Hi, I'm Jen. Listen, we have an amazing interview coming up. But before that, I want to remind you, we have a really fun live virtual event and you are all invited. It's Monday, you guys. It's like three days from now. But guess what? RSVPs are still open. We're partnering with Differin to host a live version of our podcast where we'll be talking about skincare, the acne-fighting power of retinoids, giving makeup advice and more, and we want you to be there. It all starts March 8th at 8 p.m. EST, 7 p.m. Central, 6 p.m. if you're on the West Coast, and if you are somewhere else around the globe, just please do the math yourself. I'm so sorry, but it starts at 8 p.m. EST, and then you just have to kind of figure it out from there. And we're so sorry if it's in the middle of the night. We're so sorry.
1: (laughs) It's going to be really fun. We have Sarah Tan from Los Angeles will be there. Uh, Dermatologist Dr. Camille Howard, a makeup artist, Deline Medin, will um, be talking about retinoids. It's called the Retinoid Roundtable, if you will, to RSVP. So this is Monday, RSVP now. By the way, you're going to get two free gifts afterwards. So join us for the event. You're going to get free gifts from different, which is very cool. It's free to RSVP. Go to retinoidroundtable.com. Com. And if you're listening to this after March 8th, I'm sorry you missed it, but guess what? There's going to be a live podcast. We recorded it, so you're going to be able to hear that in the coming weeks, and we'll let you know about that. Now,
2: Jen, did you say two free gifts and that it's free to RSVP that's for right. the event? That's right, I did, Jess. Thank you for reminding the people of that. Mm, nice.
1: Now, speaking of derms, oh, Dr. Caroline Robinson is here. I love Dr. Robinson. She is so much fun, Um. She's like, you really want to talk about scalp health and hair, Jen? She's like, I do cosmetic dermatology. I do all these other things. But yeah, we had a hair chat. We had a scalp chat. Um, Dr. Robinson is a board-certified medical and cosmetic dermatologist in Chicago. Uh, She has a subspecialty in alopecia, preventative skincare, ethnic skin dermatology. She's a graduate of Cornell, University of Louisville. She's so great. She's also involved with a lot of the dermatological organizations where we get a lot of our information that we share with you on the podcast, the Skin of Color Society, the Women's Dermatologic Society, the American Academy of Dermatology. I will link to her practice on our blog so you can check out more about her and maybe go see her if you're in the Chicago area because she is an amazing dermatologist and we talk all about scalp and hair, all the myths. Oh, I got some myths from you guys that she's going to bust. It's going to be really fun. Let's get into it.
0: Dr. Robinson, welcome to Fat Mascara. Thank you, Jen. Thanks for having me.
1: It's good to hang out and talk derm, like one of yeah. my favorite things to do. <laughs> Mine too. So happens. <laughs> it, wor- it worked out for you since this is your job. How did you even get into this career? Was
0: there uh, was there something that drew you to it? I would say that it was kind of a little roundabout. Definitely, when I was younger, I was very creative and I like like to paint and I. I even at one point thought that I was going to be a fashion designer. Then my dad was like, okay, well, let's focus. What do you really want to do? And I started thinking about the classes that I liked um, the most. And I really loved biology, just kind of understanding how things worked in the human body um, and really just kind of the science of it. But it wasn't probably until medical school that at that point I had to decide on a specialty. And I started to explore different areas of medicine, like internal medicine and gynecology. And I just didn't really see myself in any of those specialties. Mm -hmm. But when I rotated through dermatology, I like it was almost like automatically like a light bulb went off because. There were so many different things that you could do. You were a pathologist. You were an oncologist, you know, um, diagnosing and treating skin cancers. You worked with all different ages, babies and, you know, people later in life. And I just saw myself being able to do so many things in dermatology. And that's when I fell in love with it.
1: I imagine there's an art to it, too. Like, if you were going to be a fashion designer, clearly... Mm -hmm. You need a little creativity, right?
0: Yeah. You know, um, unfortunately, a lot of conditions in dermatology don't have cures. We have very good treatments, but we don't have um, a lot of cures. And so a lot of times we're working with people over a long period of time to try to manage these chronic conditions. And at some point, you know, we've used everything that's evidence-based and we have to start Looking at a person's life and what works with their life, and maybe we need to try something a little more creative or you know mix mix therapies a bit, so I think there is a little mm-hmm. bit of creativity in dermatology for sure,
1: yeah, and now I know you love talking about like I follow you on Instagram, so I know you love <laughs> a good topical and talking about skin and the cosmetic cosmetic aspects of dermatology. But I wanted to get super sexy with you and talk about
0: scalps. (laughs) Oh, that's the sexiest. (laughs) Isn't it though?
1: Because we actually did meet when you were uh, at a scalp event and it got me thinking that you would be someone great to talk to because we can also talk about hair and those kind of things. But before we get into that, because I do have some listener questions too, I I feel like we need some basics and who better than the derm. Like what is the scalp? How is it different from skin?
0: Yeah, you know, it's one of, I would say, one of the least understood areas by the public, you know. We just kind of like focus on our hair and no one's really talking about the scalp. They're just like, oh, it's just there uh, to, to grow hair, you know.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: But it's skin also. And so just like the skin on the rest of our body, the scalp can get oily, it can get dry, it can develop rashes, um, all of the things that the skin on our body does. It is thicker skin, for sure. And it does have more sebaceous glands. So those are the glands that produce sebum and oil. So those are important things to take into account when we're caring for it, but it is different from the rest of our skin.
1: And why is the hair... I, maybe this doesn't have to do with the scalp, but why does the hair grow long there whereas like our facial hair body hair doesn't grow that long?
0: Yeah um i I suspect that there is an evolutionary you know reason for that, but we definitely have evolved to grow more terminal hairs, which are the thicker hairs in that area of the scalp than the rest of our body. Um, we have the ability to grow hair, you know, obviously in other areas of our body. So, but those hairs are finer and what, what we consider more fellous hairs.
1: Yeah. And so do we have pores on our scalp? Because like, I always get confused. Like, I feel like, does every pore have a hair? And are the pores that are on our scalp the same as the ones on our face? Do you even call them pores?
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that um, I I heard somewhere... Like the funniest thing once about this, that like pores have like the best PR team or or something, (laughs) but you know, like they get so much attention, but essentially what a pore is, it's the opening of the hair follicle. So... Uh, when we are saying follicle and when we're saying pores, we're sometimes using that interchangeably depending on what um, condition we're talking about. But the pores, the pore is just the opening, and so we do have pores technically on our scalp that are growing our our hair. That's where our hair comes out of, and one hair is contained within each pore.
1: So, and even on your face, before we get into the scalp, then that means that each of these pores, when we're like, I got to, you know, tighten up my pores or do a pore strip or whatever, that's just a little hole
0: where the hair is popping
1: out. Exactly.
0: Yeah, exactly. Which means that we shouldn't be attacking our pores so much.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I know (laughs) I, people, you know, when, once they become visible, people get like, I don't, I don't want to see it. But like with the scalp, obviously they're there because we see our hair. Mm. Do we ha- so we do all these things to our face. What does our scalp need to function well? Does it need the same stuff?
0: So sebum, you know, we talked, we touched on a little bit, um, which is produced by the sebaceous glands and emptied that sebum is emptied into the pore or the hair follicle. That actually plays a vital role in a lot of our scalp function because the sebum coats the skin of the scalp and it actually nourishes it and it protects it. And it also coats the hair to prevent it from becoming dry and and brittle and exposed to the elements. So a lot of the function's of our scalp are built into our hair follicles and and what they're supposed to do. But how we can care for our scalp additionally is, of course, with the products that we're using to cleanse it. Cleansing is one of the most important steps, not just for our face and and the rest of our bodies, but also for our scalp. I think that like a lot of the trouble that I notice as a clinician is related to cleansing frequency, cleansing choice, you know, what you're using. Um, And I would say that that goes for both the scalp and the face.
1: So what would happen if you never washed your scalp? Which I mean, basically the way we think of it is like washing your hair.
0: Mm. You would be itchy, flaky,
1: (laughs) oily. (laughs) But they didn't have like nice fancy shampoo and stuff back in the day, you know, Mm -hmm. Where, where people... Cleansing their scalp in a different way.
0: You know, I'm not in uh, deep into the his history of how. how a <laughs> I'm not a, a, dur- a dramato historian, but I do think that um, people used at least. At the very least, water, and in different water, cultures, yeah. there were there were different um, cleansing agents that they used. I don't I don't think it was as fancy as the shampoos that we have now, and it didn't need to be probably at those times because we are using a lot more on our skin and a lot more in our hair now too.
1: So you want shampoo, obviously, that like. Preserves the nature of the sebum because you, as you said, that stuff is so important. Is there anything else you could do to like get nice, juicy, healthy hair sebum, <laughs> <laughs> diet-wise or you know, health-wise?
0: That's such an interesting question because I think most of the um, trouble that people run into is where there's an overproduction of sebum to the point that it's causing symptoms, and my job is to help them bring that back down to, you know, normal. But in terms of like optimizing your sebum, that's, that's interesting. And I don't, I don't know that we've explored that so much scientifically.
1: <laughs> so we want, but the, what you're saying is we want balance. Like you don't want too much sebum. You don't want too little sebum. It's all about keeping it in balance. That makes oh, a lot of sense. Oh,
0: absolutely. Yeah, because- What can, what
1: can you, go wrong if you have too much sebum?
0: Yeah, um, if you have too much sebum, you depending on you know other factors like your genetics, your susceptibility to certain conditions, you can develop dandruff. And even more severe on that spectrum is seborrheic dermatitis. Um, So those now we're
1: really getting sexy.
0: (laughs) This is the I told you this is the the part. But (laughs) yeah, so I don't know if you knew this, but dandruff is. One of the most common scalp conditions, it actually affects the majority of Americans. And um, it can really like take a toll on people's quality of life because, you know, if the flakes are visible, especially on like dark clothing, um, people can be embarrassed. They might not wear things that they would normally wear. So it definitely is something that affects a lot of us.
1: Since you brought up those two conditions, I'm going to have to ask about them. Dandruff. So what kind? What? What is that? I, it comes from too much sebum. But what is it? Is it the sebum? Is it a fungus? A yeast? A weird little creepy crawly? Dead skin? So I just name more gross things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you know, it's an it's an interplay of a lot of different things. Definitely overproduction of sebum plays a role. But what we've been finding is that, of course, this happens on areas of the skin and the uh scalp that tend to produce more sebum, but it also happens in certain individuals. So it affects men more than women it affects dandruff in particular can affect certain ethnic groups more than others. There was actually a study in 2010 that showed that it can impact up to 80 to 90% of uh, African Americans and mm. compared to 60 to 80% of Caucasians. So it is a huge like health concern that people have because There are so many like symptoms that you can have itching, flaking, but with seborrheic dermatitis at the more, more severe end of the spectrum, you can get inflammation, which can sometimes be visible on the skin. And that can really, I honestly think itching is the worst symptom. Like,
1: is that like a secondary thing that happens? Like, okay, you had the dandruff and that like mess, like what inflamed itself, like what's seborrheic seborrheic dermatitis?
0: So seborrheic dermatitis has all of the same influences as dandruff with overproduction of the sebum with the flakes, but the inflammatory component, the the itching and the the visible inflammation on the skin, we actually don't understand very well uh, as dermatologists, as scientists. Uh, We know that it tends to run in families. There are certain people Uh also like who have acne, for example, who are more likely to have seborrheic dermatitis. We also see it in very specific scenarios, like in immunocompromised patients with HIV or AIDS, we see a high rate of seborrheic dermatitis with neurologic conditions like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's um, and congenital disorders like Down syndrome. So I think there's a lot more that we have to understand exactly what's happening, but with along with the oil production, we know that that is influenced by hormones. And so, some of these scenarios and some of these conditions are definitely areas where we see um, hormonal influences as well.
1: And that can be not just on your scalp, right? You can get that on your face and other parts of your body. So. Let's talk about treatment then. Like people know about dandruff shampoos and we'll talk about that, but you just made me think like, do those same ingredients sometimes help with seborrheic dermatitis as well? Because I was just thinking my husband, his doctor told him to wash his face with his dandruff shampoo. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you're nodding. Okay. That's not crazy. I was like, that seems really (laughs) drying, But but he has seborrheic dermatitis. So I'm guessing that's why.
0: Yeah, yeah. So we can see seborrheic dermatitis in the eyebrows, in the smile lines, and around the nose, and even on the chest. So those areas are high areas of sebum production too. And definitely, I advise patients the same way to use the, the dandruff shampoo because if you have it on your on your eyebrows, you likely have a little bit of in your in your scalp too. So two birds with one stone. <laughs>
1: So what are your go-to dandruff treatment options? Like, where do people start? I realize this is like a cyclical chronic thing that you probably work with each patient individually, but like, what's your go-to to to start out?
0: Yeah, well, as as simple as dandruff, especially if there's not a inflammatory component, you know, like visible redness um, on the the skin, uh, which would mean that it was seborrheic dermatitis, With dandruff, I often start with um, an over-the-counter shampoo. So whether it be something that contains salicylic acid, which works great at um, controlling oil and also is a keratolytic, so it's going to help loosen the flakes um, from the Mm. skin. And then even like selenium sulfide or zinc, parathione zinc, which can have a little bit of an anti-inflammatory component too. So you really want to look for something that gives you a bit of control over the oil and over the inflammatory component. And then um, something that we we kind of touched on a, a little bit, um, not too in depth, was that there is a, an influence from an organism that lives on On the skin, it's not an infection or anything, but it's a yeast that lives on all of our skin. It's called Malassezia, and normally this yeast does not cause any issues. But in the scenario where you are producing a lot of sebum, it can start to cause issues, and it can start to create some inflammation on the skin, um, and that can lead to seborrheic dermatitis too. So you definitely want to look for treatments that help to control the yeast population as well as the oil.
1: What controls the yeast? Do those same three ingredients that you talked about, the salicylic, the selenium, and the... What was the other
0: one? <laughs> some, some work um, um, more on yeast, Wait, what was the other one? Now I forget it. <laughs> oh, selenium sulfide, I think, was the other one. Um, some some work better on yeast than others. So z- pyrithione zinc, um, it that, has. That. yeah, that one can work pretty well. There's also an ingredient, a shampoo ingredient that we often prescribe that is also mm-hmm. available over the counter in a lower percentage, and that's ketoconazole. And so the the prescription strength is typically a two percent, but over the counter, a one percent is available. so I will sometimes advise people before they see a derm or if they don't have the, the access to one to go ahead and try that shampoo as well.
1: I know you're sending people out to look for these, but I'm thinking like you probably have recommendations. like I know selenium sulfides in celson blue. I only know that because like it starts with SEL and that's how I remember it. But the one the one that you just named that's in a 1% level over the counter, can you find that at like a mass retailer? Who makes the shampoo with that?
0: There's often like compare two brands, but the most common one is Nizoral. Okay. And so that's a 1% ketoconazole and that is an antifungal shampoo. So it's going to to work on controlling the yeast population on the scalp.
1: And then for the other two ingredients, like salicylic, are there any that you've tried and liked?
0: Yeah, um, there is uh, one by Neutrogena. Uh, There's actually a whole line that has different percentages of salicylic acid. That's the Healthy uh, Scalp collection that just launched. So I really like that one and I recommend that because you have control over the different percentages of salicylic acid that you're using whether it be like a 1% or even up to a
1: 3%. As you're listing all these products, I'm thinking, okay, what about our hair? Like, are yeah. they going to dry out our hair or do something bad to our hair so it looks different?
0: Right. And that's always been the the compromise. Um, that's always been the balance. And even when I'm counseling my patients with seborrheic dermatitis or dandruff, I'm always making sure that they know how to care for their hair too, and that we prepare for that too. I like to recommend shampoos that are gentler on the hair. So they Mm. still have the potency for the scalp, but they're gentler on the hair. And that's why I really like the Neutrogena line. But in addition to that, I always take into account their hair type. Like texture and type, and their washing frequency. And I think that far too often, with few exceptions, far too often when patients walk into the derm office, we're telling them how often to wash their hair when we really should be asking them how often they wash it and then kind of keeping them there and prescribing the therapy for their scalp and seeing, you know, how they improve from there. So, oh, that
1: matches their frequency. Matches
0: their frequency because you're, it's kind of like that philosophy. If you're changing too many things at once, like how will you know what works? Yeah. That's what I do.
1: So if you're a once a week washer, which are plenty of people and mm-hmm. it's your weekly wash day, are you going to like give them a little bit more potent of a shampoo because they're only washing once a week? What do you tell them to do? Or just let's start and see how it goes.
0: Yeah, let's start and see how it goes. Okay. And then um, I definitely have them follow up. And if I need to increase the frequency of washing, then I can. But oftentimes I don't. I don't need to change the frequency. I just need to change the therapy.
1: Meanwhile, if you had done that, all of a sudden it's maybe like the fact that they're now washing four days a week because you told them to dries out their thing. And now they're in a whole other cycle and everybody's confused. Yeah, I think and so. And that's good. That's good to know. If so if you're using these things and you do get some dryness, is there any way around that?
0: Oh, well, I have some some techniques. I usually have people start with a moisturizing shampoo, typically something they're already using or they've used before and they know like after they use that moisturizing shampoo their hair always feels nice. <laughs> and then yeah. I have them follow it with the medicated shampoo, which is, you know, either the -the over-the-counter or the prescription, and then follow that with a conditioner. So it's almost like the medicated shampoo is sandwiched between these two steps. And Yeah. Yeah. And that, I feel like, can be really protective for the hair because you're still getting some moisturizing shampoo, you're still getting a rich conditioner, and that can protect the hair a lot.
1: Okay, that makes sense. have to ask you some questions that listeners have like DM'd me and emailed me knowing that you were going to be here. The first (laughs) one, I can't even tell you how many times I have been asked this over the course of my beauty editor career. And I've never gotten a good answer. So it's okay if you don't have a good answer. But this happens to a lot of people that have like fine or medium fine hair. If they haven't washed for like three or four days, their scalp hurts. Like it's Mm. a gentle persistent like this, like tug, almost like your hair's in a ponytail, but it's not. What is going on? Have you ever heard this?
0: No, I have. I have. And I like, that's so interesting. I think that there are like, we can definitely perceive symptoms differently. And when we're talking about A going on three days of wash, especially if you have finer hair, I imagine that there is a lot of sebum that has been created and that has started to build up. Whether that causes inflammation or not, I wonder if we are perceiving inflammation differently. And the reason I'm saying that is because there's actually a scalp, a hair loss condition that comes to mind when you talked about this. Um, it's called CCCA or Central Centrifugal Cicatricial Alopecia. And uh-huh. in this condition, there is actually a lot of inflammation that's happening under the surface of the skin. So, not so much apparent on the skin itself, but patients will report different symptoms. So, some will be itchy, some will feel tender, some will almost. Tender. Get like, that's kind of the, de- yeah. the what I'm
1: describing. Yeah.
0: And some will get like tingling. So I wonder if we just kind of like perceive symptoms of inflammation on our scalp differently.
1: Well, I'm also thinking, you know those, um, they're like the little scratchers, the head scratchers that were really popular for a while. Our scalps are so sensitive, right? Because like I picture you did that on your knee. It's no big deal. You do that on your head and it's like, ooh, best feeling ever.
0: Yeah, yeah. I know. Like even when I'm like, shampooing, I'm like, oh, certain parts of the scalp seem to be a little more sensitive. So I think for sure there's something to that.
1: I mean, even if you go and get like a wash at the salon, like it's such a good experience. And I'm like, if someone washed my hands, I'd be like, cool, thanks. But (laughs) you know, a shampoo by somebody else is like, can be really good. (laughs) divine. Yes, exactly. Okay. Well, that's interesting. It could be maybe a little bit of the sensation of inflammation differing for people. And that's what's going on. In my head, I was like, oh, it's the coated hair and it got real heavy. But I'm like, serum doesn't weigh that much that it's pulling on your hair. This is why I'm not a doctor, obviously. (laughs) Okay. Another question. For some reason on TikTok, this has gotten super popular that you'll see these people extracting ingrown hairs. Mm. And I'm like, well, that's a head because you'll see the other follicles around you're like that's a hair head A do you need to take out an ingrown hair like can you just leave that there and it'll get dealt with and B if you're doing it I'm sure you've seen these videos like
0: Mm -hmm. is there a right way to do it You know, I really like it's a it's a dangerous situation to try to extract an ingrown hair at home. We do it in the office for sure. And we, you know, treat ingrown hairs. But I can just imagine the risk of infection, yeah. <laughs> the risk yeah. of injury to the surrounding skin that can happen in that scenario. And I know it's like, can be so gratified. It's, it's kind of like, you know, when you pop a pimple, like, should you do it? You know? So
1: oh, it's tempting
0: yeah, exactly. But, um, you know, we have different shaped hair and different shaped follicles. And in people with curlier and coarser hair, their hair follicles are actually not perpendicular to the scalp skin. They're at an angle. And that creates a high risk of ingrown hairs because the hair can actually pierce the skin when it exits the hair follicle, or it could not even exit. At all, and just kind of travel mm-hmm. underneath the skin, so it is a real problem. And you know, definitely people need options. A lot of times, I will just recommend laser hair removal because if that hair, oh, I was talking about for your head, but you should. Oh, a little- <laughs> you
1: know, you know, we're behind someone's ear or something. But yes, for like other bo- body hair, I imagine that's a
2: good, a yeah, good don't thing. Yeah, definitely laser if you're really hair.
1: In- <laughs> Can you imagine if someone came with like one? And yeah. I'm like behind their ear, and you're like, laser hair removal. Yeah. No, but the, do they work themselves out if, if you don't go they to the can. doctor? They can. They can. What's the for point sure. where you're like, okay, it's time for the doctor? Because that's a lot of things for people. Like, am I going to go pay a copay? This isn't a virtual visit. I got to go in. Like mm-hmm. with any kind of bump on your head, I guess, not just ingrown hair. Like when should you call the
0: doctor? Yeah, I would say if it's persistent, you know, maybe it, Developed, it worked its way out, or you know, maybe you did one of those TikTok things that I am (laughs) advising against, (laughs) and you know, but then it came back, and it's still causing trouble. Then I would say it's time to start considering going to a doctor. I would also say that some of the things that we already talked about in terms of dandruff control and seborrheic dermatitis could be applicable here because a lot of times um, the hair follicle is getting... It's a pore, right? So it can get filled with dead skin. It can get filled with sebum. And that is only going to make the situation worse for an ingrown hair. So you definitely want to use a cleanser or even a shampoo that is addressing that.
1: Like the salicylic acid that you mentioned, that kind of thing.
0: Salicylic acid, yeah.
1: Yeah, you made me think if it comes back or it's persistent, is there a history to pores? Meaning, like, I feel like everybody, I remember this ex I had, he had this one pore (laughs) on his back that would, like, always get a really long hair. Or a Mm -hmm. lot of people are like, they get a whitehead in the same spot or one of those little um, sebaceous filaments and it's always in the same spot Mm -hmm. or an ingrown always in the same spot. Is there any, like, cyclical nature to that? Like, the pore remembers do you see that in patients? Or am I being ridiculous?
0: No, you're not being ridiculous. Um, it it is always that same one, right?
1: That's what I'm saying. Uh, What's
0: up with the rogue pore? Yeah, there's a pore that just went rogue, and so I think you know a lot of times um, what I see, like especially on the back, we can see this. There is actually a diagnosis, a specific diagnosis for it, like a dilated pore of winer, It's called, and okay. um, yeah, it just gets filled up with so much dead skin, and oil, that the pore stretches and it di- it dilates. Oh, and so, okay. of course, that pore, even if you empty it, no matter how much you empty it, it's just going to fill back up.
1: Oh, because it's like saggy around, the skin around it has been compromised,
0: yes. kind of. Yeah, I would never say that to... <laughs> no, <I> would- <laughs> okay, on,
1: we are talking in theoretical here only, yes. obviously. <laughs> poor, poor. I guess so you couldn't yes. technically like... Sew it up, or laser it, or something, right? If it was really bothersome, that if you had one of those, oh,
0: oh, I often will like remove it. Almost similar to assist removal, we'll just kind of take a little cookie cutter device and take out the plug of skin that, like a little punch, yeah, like a little punch, and then we put a a suture or two in there.
1: Okay, so take care of the pore of whiner.
0: You said yes. I love these names. Oh my God, so
1: good. Okay, let's talk products. Yes. We're back to the hair. I'm sorry, it took us off on a whole tangent. But a a lot of our listeners ask about ingredients, please. Mm -hmm. Marketers, tell us about ingredients. We get confused. We see, again, that person on TikTok telling us this thing. Do you think there's any ingredients that are straight up bad for your hair?
0: Anything that's super drying, especially if you have more textured hair or curly hair, because... In those scenarios, the sebum, which is supposed to protect us, doesn't Mm -hmm. coat the hair as well. It takes a long time for it to travel down the hair shaft um, to the very, very ends of the hair, which is in general why all of us have more brittle ends because they're older and less protected. What
1: are drying ingredients? You know, there's some alcohols that are good for your hair. And like people think they know and they turn over the, the list and it's like no, that's actually a good alcohol that you want, you know?
0: So first there's fatty alcohols like that, that are basically hydrating to the hair. So I wouldn't flip your shampoo or conditioner over and just, you know, chuck it because it says alcohol. There are so many different types of, of alcohols that are actually beneficial to the hair. So that's one. And I know there's been this like war on, on sulfates as well. Mm-hmm. So everyone wants the sulfate-free shampoo and and all of that, and I think that there is a place for those sulfate-free shampoos, which are basically contain surfactants that are um, gentler on the scalp and the hair. But I also think it's important to remember that ultimately we're trying to clean our scalp. So every so often, um, it's a good idea to incorporate a shampoo that maybe contains some sulfates or a clarifying shampoo so that you can Mm -hmm. actually really cleanse your scalp. So I don't, I don't know, maybe I, maybe I will modify my original response (laughs) that it's not, it's not that things are necessarily bad for the hair and the scalp. Mm -hmm. It's that you need to use things in a particular way, and some of the um shampoos and and products that tend to be a little more drying should be used in moderation.
1: Got it. And you mentioned sulfates. I see that as well. Another one that comes up a lot is silicones, like mm. companies making silicone free products. And then I hear from the makers, well, that's what the people want. And I'm like, well, is there a reason
0: they want that
1: like yeah. Like who told them about that? So what's your take on silicones?
0: It, silicones are not bad.
1: <laughs> you just you,
0: I mean, I'm not crazy, you, right? Like no, people, people I've even heard
1: hairstylists say, like, oh, it clogs your pore. Right. And like with like simplified science, that kind of makes sense. It's a slippery, thick ingredient. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. But what, what what what's your take?
0: So definitely again, it's one of those things you want to use in modify in moderation, especially if you're in a situation where you're using silicone every day and then you're like Mm. Using a sulfate free shampoo, are you even getting, are you even washing the silicone out, you know? So I think that there is Uh, is an opportunity to like, for it to not be a great scenario for your hair. But um, I do not think silicones as an ingredient are bad. You know, some people desire more of a a slip or you know that shine that a silicone can provide. And that's just aesthetics. Like we like is lipstick bad, you know what I mean? We yeah, we we want that look for our hair. So as long as we are cleansing it, there is not an issue with silicones.
1: What about other ingredients that like help? Uh, change the texture of your hair. Like obviously, formaldehyde you don't want both breathing it and whatever. But are there any other ingredients in the texture treatments people get that can be dangerous?
0: Formaldehyde, no, that's bad. Don't do don't do that. <laughs> uh, I think you know, like as as a nation, we have decided like no formaldehyde in our hair. I know that there was like what was that like in the early 2000s and and things when the brazilian straightening treatments were in and there was an uproar because some of the, it was thought that some of them c- contained formaldehyde and so then the industry responded with formaldehyde free brazilian hair straightening treatments mm-hmm. which were basically contain precursors of formaldehyde.
1: Yeah, you hit it with heat, and you still are making. You're like off gassing formaldehyde.
0: Yeah, you're still making the same thing. So, um, yeah, I I would say that is in the bad category. It's not something that I ever recommend my patients do, especially since a lot of my patients are dealing with hair loss or shedding or thinning, or mm-hmm. you know, some change anyway. And then I also think you know there's the whole category of chemical. Uh, straighteners like chemical relaxers and then dyes, hair dyes. All of those treatments penetrate the hair shaft in order to do, you know, for a specific purpose. In the case of chemical straighteners, they they break down disulfide bonds. Um, so the purpose is to straighten. And so they they modify the chemistry of the hair in that way. So I would consider that in the bad c- category because we should try not to modify the chemistry of our hair um, just in terms of hair health because that makes it a little more susceptible to damage. And then with the hair dyes, they especially when you're going up like lighter in color that can, you know, penetrate the hair shaft and affect the melanin that's contained in the hair shaft, you know, to to dye the hair. But I don't like to have my patients lead such boring lives. So, <laughs> you know, with all that badness that I just said, I, do, I generally like people to lead joyful lives. So I've, uh, conceptually created like three buckets for my patients of vices, and one would be hair dyes, one would be chemical hair straightening, and then the third is just like excessive heat. And I just tell them, choose one vice. Please don't choose two okay. or three. <laughs> just choose one okay, no, cho- vice, yeah. Choose one vice and do it in moderation, and we should be good. <laughs>
1: That's, that's a good theory and way to approach it because sometimes you just throw up your hands. You're like, well, if it's all bad and this is good and I don't know, but I like this. You gave us numbers on it, like a doctor with like an analytical <laughs> approach. Okay. Before I'm going to do a speed round with you, yeah. do it every guest, one more question. Is there any, um, like any myths or tr- things that you just see over and over in your practice related to scalp or hair health that you're like, I now have a broad audience listening people. This is not true.
0: Oh, Jen. Or make well, my job easier. Well, <laughs> I I I basically got like attacked on TikTok
1: <laughs> mm.
0: for saying that castor oil does not grow hair. And <sighs> you know this is a myth that we hear often and i think that it's a myth that people are very very invested in you know some some for some reasons culturally and so you know i don't i don't want to like offend anyone but just the science is not there and i actually as a physician see the consequences of people using it so i was particularly motivated to educate on TikTok but it was it was not pretty. Yeah, so you know, castor oil is a very very thick oil and pa- I I see a lot of patients especially with scarring hair loss who have been dedicated castor oil users for years yeah. and they they it, you know, it came at their detriment because they didn't get a diagnosis because everyone said it should work and so maybe if they use more Or maybe if they just try a little harder. And so I just think that that is a huge myth that needs to be dispelled.
1: Yeah. It's tough when it's tied to like you grew up with it, your mom told you, like people you absolutely trust, and then some doctor that you don't even know from whoever. Yeah. I mean, isn't that the thing with our country and the world? Like we want to pick and choose what our experts say when it fits
2: what we want?
1: I know. Well, so the white papers are not there. The science, are not white papers, even the clinicals are not there. Like it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't grow hair. Okay. So in moderation, I guess that goes with as well, the castor oil, huh?
0: Right. Right. And I, I always tell people, I'm like, I'm not going to pull you off it, but let's get the diagnosis. Let's get you on some treatment yeah. that actually works. And if you want to put castor oil on top of that, that's totally fine.
1: <laughs> Got it. Okay. Good. Good to clarify. And people might come at us Again, yeah, but that's fine. <laughs> stand by it. Um okay, speed round. We do this to every uh, with every guest, uh, and I have a one special for you. What's the first hairstyle you remember
0: having? Oh, braids, probably. <laughs> what was your braid style? Who did the braids? Mom did them. Um, I had like the colorful little barrettes and beads, and it was just a bunch of braids, like in different directions on, on my head. <laughs>
1: Oh my, God. remember the packs of barrettes and they would be like wide open plastic and you had to like bend them into shape to get yes. them. And it was like the bug, the butterfly. I oh just pa- I just had like a flashback to being young, those. and that <laughs> I haven't thought about that in a while. What's the biggest hair mistake you've ever made?
0: Oh my gosh. So in high school, I dyed my hair blonde with you see that I'm blonde now, so but anyway, yeah. I dyed my hair blonde with a Feria box with Beyonce on the cover because oh my God, I remember it. Yeah. And she had blonde hair, and I was like, oh, well, her hair looks like mine, and this is the box, and this is probably what she used. And I dyed my hair, and literally so much breakage and so much shedding, it was a huge mistake. Oh, no.
1: <laughs> that was actually, now that I'm thinking about that, that's kind of deceptive, because like, nobody tells you you have to lift first, and it might take yeah. multiple steps to get to that color. Yeah. Oh, alas. That's okay. <laughs> Well, your hair looks great now. So Thanks. clearly we've rectified that. We What's your have. favorite like hair tool, towel, wrap accessory that you can't live without?
0: Oh my God. I have so many. I love the Dyson oh, yeah. hairdryer. Yeah. I use that just like whenever I'm trying to do like a, like a more defined curly style, I'll like just roughly blow it out first and then I'll put my curly styling what's, what's
1: your attachment? I know there's all the different heads. Which one do you put yeah, on? Yeah,
0: I put the comb on it. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And now, product-wise, what's your favorite styling condition shampoo product?
0: Oh, my God. I also have so many here. I really like Inner I'll sense. allow a
1: couple if you want.
0: Oh, good. I was like, do I have to choose one? <laughs> Um, I really like InnerSense, which I believe is a UK brand, and they have a really rich, like hydrating shampoo because I need a lot of moisture and not something that's going to clean but not strip. And I also really like their conditioner too, but I would say that a recent obsession is the Olaplex purple shampoo because okay. I have the the blonde and I don't like it to be like too yellow. So I kind of like tone it a little bit. And then I, I have the K18 oh, yes. yeah, hair mask with
1: peptides. That peptide is yeah. amazing. <laughs> Isn't it so good? so good. It's one of my favorites too. Last question. If you were not a doctor, what do you think you would be doing? And now I feel like we're going all the way back to the bidding and I'm yeah. guessing the answer, but go ahead. Obviously a fashion designer. <laughs> it's so funny. We asked the doctor this once and he was like, uh, a dentist. I was like, that does not count, no. but I, yours is completely different. So, okay. If this doctor thing doesn't work out, yeah, what are you going to call your fashion label?
0: Oh my God. I probably would name it like after my mom or my grandmother. They're, my my parents were born in Nigeria. And uh, I just like, the names are so pretty. So my mom's name is Ngozi with its uh, yes. depth tongue to it. So maybe I'd call it that.
1: That's perfect. I love that you came up with it. Just sorry to put you on the spot, but <laughs> no, I, I'm okay. planning your your future second career. Yeah. This was so fun. I know scalps are like not the most exciting thing to talk about, but I feel like we, we learned a lot and I really appreciate you um, coming on the show.
0: Oh my God, this was so fun. Thanks for having me, Jen.
1: <laughs> we hope you enjoyed the show. It's your reviews and feedback that help us make the podcast even better